use of Pew Bible or the text provided in the bulletin, our, our uh, scripture this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're visiting today, we started a number of weeks ago a series in this little epistle from the, uh, the first one, really, probably the uh, Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians. We're now into chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that the, somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we render to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your, you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What keeps you up at night? The thing that weighs so heavily in your spirit that you can't sleep. Conversely, what makes you feel like shouting for joy? That thing make, that makes your soul feel like, that's all I could ever desire. Why am I asking? Because this is where Paul is living in this text existentially. The text starts with a tension. Twice, Paul says, when we could bear it no longer. When we could bear it no longer. Bear what? Paul could not bear not knowing how his friends in Thessalonica were, and specifically, do they still have vital faith? That's how the text begins. He hasn't had word from them how they are. He had to be deported out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night. No goodbyes. And he knows they are under attack. That's how the text begins. This, this tension, we could bear it no longer. And then the second half of the text, the tension is released. <laughs> His heart is full of joy. Verse 8, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so, understandably, he's jumping for joy, verse 9, 
What thanksgiving can we render to God for all the joy we have knowing that you're doing okay? I mean, this, he's just overflowing with emotion. He's gone from sleepless nights, tension, angst, to unspeakable joy and relief. What concept is at the heart, at the center of this continuum of emotions? It's faith. Five times he references faith in the text. That tells you that your faith is the most precious possession of your life. And what I want to do is look at this text and examine five things the text tells you about faith so that you are increasingly cherishing your faith as your most prized possession. Number one, faith is essential. Paul came to the city of Thessalonica preaching a message he was heralding or announcing good news, something that is supposed to bring relief, joy, confidence, peace to the hearts of human beings. And what he did is he announced facts that the man Jesus Christ in time and space accomplished through his perfect life Death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus accomplished everything sinners need to be right with God. On his cross, he removed sin. By virtue of his resurrection, he secured a safe place in the presence of God. But all that has happened outside of you. It's happened objectively in history. And so the million-dollar question becomes, how do you benefit from that? How does that become yours? See, if you're a person that takes seriously the fact that your sin separates you from God, your sin justly deserves God's judgment, you really want to know how you can become one with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus because that's the only hope for eternity. The way you become one with that is faith. Faith brings you, as it were, into union with the death of Jesus so that death is your death to sin. It brings you into union with Jesus so that his resurrection into the presence of God is yours. So the nature of faith then is to rest upon, believe in, rely upon the work of of the Lord Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you go out on a long dock into a deep lake and you fall in and you're not a swimmer and you're starting to drown. Somebody throws a life preserver and you look and you go, there it is, I believe it exists. Many people believe Jesus exists. Many people know he claimed to die for sinners on the cross and that he was raised from the dead. But that mere knowledge does them no good until they do what? You will drown until you do what? 
Grab the life preserver. Put the weight of your life upon it. Rest on it to save you from peril. That's what faith is. It's not merely knowing Jesus exists, but it's taking him as a life preserver and depending exclusively on him. So you see what key principle follows. Your faith always has an object. There's something you trust in. There's something you rest upon. Faith always has an object. And the flip side of that coin is simply this. Your faith is only as good as the object you trust. And that's why the Bible passages you read this morning and many other Bible passages are are constantly trying to wean us away from trusting our own works to be right with God because they won't do it. They're not good enough. Suppose you fall off the dock, you're not a swimmer, you're drowning, somebody throws what looks like a life preserver and you grab it and it turns out it was just made out of paper. And in an instant, that life preserver turns to mush. Is it going to save you? Let's suppose you're absolutely convinced before you grab it, that life preserver will save you. Will that sincerity save you? No. It is the strength of the life preserver that saves you. Sincerity doesn't save you. It's the strength of the life preserver to keep you from peril. Who in earth's history ever promised to save sinners from the penalty of death and to raise them on the last day? Do you know anyone who ever promised to do that? There's only one man in the history of all the world religions that said, I'm the only one that can deliver you from sin and death, and that's Jesus. Jesus made that promise. He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He who believes has eternal life. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus has for 2,000 years through his word and through his apostles been saying, come to me and I will save you. And he alone, he alone is able to save sinners. And that is so comforting, isn't it? Because it isn't the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of Jesus to save sinners that saves us, however weak or strong that faith is. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know that sometimes your faith is stronger or weaker than other times, right? It ebbs and flows. We, we can admit that. And that is why it's so important to see, to keep seeing, to gaze upon the object of your faith, Jesus. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 12, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us cast aside the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So look, you and I go through times when Jesus is kind of fuzzy. You might be in one of those times right now. I believe everything you said so far, Mike, but Jesus is kind of fuzzy. You need to be sure of this. It's not because he's abandoned you. What should you do if you have a fuzzy Jesus in your life? I exhort you to act on it today. Every day that goes by that you are content with a fuzzy Jesus is perilous to your soul. Get with people who happen to be at the moment seeing Jesus clearly and let them encourage you 
open this book and ask Jesus to make himself clear. He will. And consider the things you are putting your eyes on that are making Jesus fuzzy. We're always looking at something. And if Jesus is fuzzy, it's because something else has captured the attention of the imagination of your heart. You're being more infatuated with something else. What is that thing? That needs to be repented of, to be turned from and turned to Jesus. First point, faith is essential. Secondly, to the end that you and I cherish our faith as our most prized possession. Understand that faith will be assaulted. Two weeks ago in the sermon, we saw a little bit of that, and it came out of this text, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Right? Afflictions are going to move you. Faith is going to stabilize you. You yourselves know we were destined for these afflictions when we were with you. We keep telling you beforehand, we are going to suffer affliction just as it came to pass and as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for, the, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and her labor would be in vain. Now, this is just weird that wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached, there's hostility. I don't get it. Christians make the best citizens. Christians are called by God to honor every authority. They're called to live in their cultures and make their cultures better. They're called to live self-sacrificially. They're called to love their enemies, and yet they often get the worst treatment. I don't get that. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll know why. Of course, it's what they did to Jesus and the disciples, not above his teacher. But Paul acknowledges that affliction potentially threatens their faith, although in the economy of God, faith prepares you for affliction and is sharpened through affliction. In the case of the Thessalonians, Paul identifies two sources the persecution they're undergoing for belonging to Jesus. And he says, the tempter. I fear that the tempter had tempted you and our, and our work was in vain. What does that tell you? That every morning you wake up, if you are a possessor of faith in Jesus, the powers of darkness are working overtime to destroy your faith. You woke up this morning at war with indwelling sin, and at war with the devil. He is at war with your faith. He hates it. He despises when frail human beings like us place all our trust in Jesus. It is interesting that when Paul describes the armor of God, which is all the equipment we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, he exhorts us to take up the shield of faith. And how does that function? Some of you know the text. When you take up the shield of faith, that is function to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. I mean, the implication is if I'm not actively taking up the shield, the missiles are hitting. The missiles are coming. He's drawn his bow. 
You belong to Jesus? He hates Jesus so much, he has to hate you. He knows he will be destroyed one day. He wants to destroy your faith, which saves you from that day. So it raises this question. As those flaming missiles are coming, Satan is trying to burn up something in your life. What is it? Well, he's trying to burn up your faith. What are the things... I just made a list from my own experience. What are the things that promote faith, that strengthen faith, that bolster our faith? You can be sure those are things Satan wants to burn up and destroy. For example... Did God ever give you a hunger for his word? Satan wants to burn that up. Maybe you say, honestly, I used to have that. I don't anymore. That missile has landed, singed it. A hunger for his word. Does that strengthen faith? Faith is impossible apart from the word of God. What about answered prayer? You had an experience where you prayed and there was a dramatic, dramatic answer to prayer. You were filled with faith. That memory, burn it up so that that person can't be trusting the Lord. How about a sense of closeness to Jesus? We used to call, didn't we used to call that the mountaintop experience back in the 70s? Amy Grant, didn't she have a song about coming down from the mountaintop? And you were really close to the Lord. And now it's like, I, I don't remember what that was like. Burn it up. Uh, a, a relationship that was incredibly faith-building to you. Satan gets in there and, i got to destroy this because it's bringing faith to someone who really needs it. How about a longing to worship? You might look back at the time when I just couldn't wait till Sunday got here and I couldn't wait to get in those doors and I couldn't wait to worship because it was so transforming to me personally and my faith was enlarged and it's like, that's gone here comes the arrow. Burn it! It's what he wants to destroy. You went through a trial and somehow, supernaturally, God was sustaining you and keeping you above the fray. He kept you in confidence in a trial. And it's like, oh, I hardly remember. It, maybe it was burned up by this flaming missile. You used to set in front of you cogent arguments for the, for the truthfulness and veracity of Christianity. And they bolstered your faith. I'm, they're important to our faith, aren't they? Cogent arguments for why the Bible's true. Jesus rose from the dead. This is a theocentric world, in fact. Cogent arguments. They're very important. Satan wants to burn those up. How about the sense that you are God's precious treasure? I mean, your heart is just, your heart's overflowing with the sense that I'm his precious treasure. Well, that, if I ever had that, that's gone, burned up. Or a special deliverance you experienced. I'm just, I'm just listing a couple of things that in the past may have strengthened your faith and that without the shield coming up, Satan wanted to destroy. Paul says unequivocally in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of faith. If you say, in Jesus, I see the glory of God, and in any measure you want that, and you embrace that, and you know that is true truth, thank God for his grace to you. And that belief is under assault. That's the point.
What are we doing? In this, this continuum of emotions, Paul's angst and his relief. Paul's saying the concept at the heart of that is faith. We must be protecting and cherishing our faith as the most treasured treasure we have on this earth. Third thing about it, faith produces love. Paul writes in verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So to repeat, why does Paul have angst? Why is he losing sleep at night? Because two facts are disjointed. Fact number one, Paul loves the Thessalonians. Fact number two, the Thessalonians love Paul. But neither Paul nor the Thessalonians know the other fact. The Thessalonians know they love Paul. They're not sure Paul loves them. Paul knows he loved the Thessalonians. He's not sure the Thessalonians still love him. And these two facts become united in Timothy's report. It'd just be so cool to imagine the moment Paul, you know, Paul's down there studying at Starbucks and Timothy comes in with this big smile on his face and Paul knows exactly what that means. All's well in Thessalonica. There had to be tears of joy there had to be backward somersaults. <laughs> so that's, that's why Paul sent Timothy to get this straight. And you say, so what, Mike? Well, here's the so what. This is love. My welfare is bound up in your welfare. I can't be doing okay if you're not doing okay. I think that's a fair principle that comes out of this text. I mean, why does Paul want to know? We, they think kindly of you. They remember you. They want to see you face to face. Do you know that when Janice and I go out to dinner, we sit at different tables in the restaurant? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. We like to look at each other. We love each other. Same for Paul. That's love. And it's different than the world's version of love, with all respect. Typically, the, the way the unbelieving world does love is, I'm in the relationship as long as I'm getting what I want, but when I don't, I'm gone. It explains why divorce is so prevalent in our culture. Christians bring a dynamic to relationship that is a power that keeps it together. There's a glue, and that is relationships in Christianity are framed by mercy because Christian relationships have at the base a great equalizer. I am what I am by the grace of God, and I would be far worse than your worst mistakes, but for the grace of God. And therefore, Christians can bear one another's failures and faults because of mercy, <laughs> It really makes a difference in our relationships. Which is why, beloved, your elders want you in home groups. They want you either in home groups or Bible studies where you are face to face with other believers who love you, bear your burdens, pray for you, know what's going on in your life. 
Don't fool yourself. If you are physically able, you can't do Christianity without this kind of love and fellowship. God never intended you to walk in faith without community. Number four, I'm looking at the nature of faith. Faith risks sacrificially. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, there's the angst, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now, let me just point this out. Paul says we here, but he really means I. This is kind of an editorial we. And maybe by the, by the, by the uh, point of saying we, he's saying, you know, Timothy and I were in such cahoots on this decision that it was a we. But, but the text makes clear Paul was left alone in Athens when he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. So his angst reaches a tipping point. Something must be done. I'm, let's imagine this is what happened. They called a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, they're pleading for the welfare of the believers in Thessalonica. Lord, care for them. They're under fire. Sustain their faith. They're pleading, interceding for the welfare of the Thessalonians. And Lord, it, they wonder, we don't know that they still love us. They don't know we still love them. Lord, bring some sort of resolution to that. Amen. And what happens in a prayer meeting after amen? Everybody opens their eyes. And there's kind of this pregnant pause. Who's going to say the first thing? I can imagine that a prayer meeting like that, Paul's voice broke the silence. Timothy, it dawned on me in our prayer that you should go to Thessalonica. Paul, I can't leave you behind in Athens. We're co-workers in the gospel ministry. If I leave you behind, it is going to feel like death. Timothy, you're right. It will, it will feel like death. But you've got to go. Getting word of the faith of the Thessalonians supersedes my being alone in Athens. Here's the principle. Faith frees you to part with good things for the sake of others. This is a church of people who for decades have parted with resources, conveniences, time, and in some cases their lives for the sake of the gospel. Let me have the attention of our young people here. Young people, young people, look at Pastor Mike. Young people, got me? Got it? When missionaries in Great Britain were sent to foreign lands for the gospel, you know what they packed all their possessions in? They didn't have suitcases. They didn't have steamer trunks. They put their possessions in their own caskets. That was their way of saying, when I come back, to the land from which I land, the only thing that's coming back is my dead body. I am going over for the sake of Jesus to spend it all. That's, that's the kind of love, the kind of commitment, the kind of sacrifice, and you wonder, where, where does that come from? Let me take a guess based on the text. Just speculation on my part. 
Curiously, in verse 2, Paul calls Timothy God's co-worker. Now, usually in the epistles, Timothy, Silas, whoever, they're co-workers together. No, he calls Timothy God's co-worker. Timothy's working with God. (laughs) And that, that just tells you that these brothers understand that kingdom ministry is ultimately God's ministry, God's means, God's power, God's resources for God's glory. It's all God's. So here's the question. Is God asking you to part with something good for the sake of the kingdom? I talk to pastors, and you know, we might get a pastor here one day who leads, leaves, and a really great ministry somewhere else in this country, but his thinking is, for the greater good of the kingdom, I will go to College Park and minister with the saints at Wallace. You'll get a guy who thinks kingdom. Very close friend of mine had a thriving ministry in Williamsburg, Virginia years ago. He took the church to a transition, got him into a building, lots of students from William & Mary coming, just really at the peak of his ministerial career. He left his call to go to Nashville because he had a unique set of gifts to help a church planter in Nashville for the greater good of the kingdom. That's what faith frees us to do. Is God asking you to part with something for the greater good of the kingdom? And finally, last thing the text shows us about faith, your most precious possession and mine Faith must be supplemented. And it's verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What a curious phrase. So the believers in Thessalonica are under attack. There's affliction. That's the threat. What do they need in light of that? It's verse 10. Paul wants to supply what is lacking in your faith. And verse 8 stipulates the goal that you would stand fast in the Lord. That's a great place to live. Standing fast in the Lord, which eludes us. There's work to be done. So let's just, for the next couple of minutes, tease out that image. Standing fast in the Lord. What is standing fast a function of? Well, foundation and your legs. So back to the dock we used earlier in the sermon. You, could, you come up in a boat to the dock, you have Olympic strength quality legs. <clears throat> Nothing stronger. Step onto the dock and it's awful. It's rickety. It's wood that's been there for a billion years. It isn't going to hold you. Can you stand fast? Strong legs, bad foundation. Can you stand fast? No. Reverse it. You've just come in from two hours of water skiing. you got rubber legs. You know what those are? Rubber legs? You get up on a dock like the one at Jeanette's Pier, South Nags Head, Jeanette's Pier. It's concrete. It's immovable. I'm not going anywhere until the Lord returns, right? You get up on this concrete pier, but you got rubber legs. Do you have a found- firm foundation? No, it takes both. It takes a firm foundation and strength of legs. So let me just tease out those two things. He says we want to come and supply what is lacking in your faith. What does Paul want to do? He wants to get back to Thessalonica and teach and disciple. 
He wants them to have a strong foundation. Biblical teaching. <laughs> teaching the Bible. Doctrine. The knowledge of Christ. Why? Because your faith is in a person, and the better you know the person, the more you trust them. Right? So tomorrow is my one-year anniversary of preaching to you. March 11, 2018, I first stood in this pulpit. One of you told me later, you looked really nervous that day, but I actually forget who you are, but it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, so some of you I, I know a year later, I trust you. I trust you. I love you. I know you. It's hard to trust a Jesus you don't know. That's why your elders want you in teaching fellowships to learn the Bible, to learn about the one you trust. Second reason this foundation is important is you become what you look at. Psalm 135, verse 15. Did I put it in the sermon outline? Is it in your sermon outline? Psalm 135? No, I might have figured this out after the bulletin was due. Listen to this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes they cannot see. They have ears they can't hear, nor is any breath in their mouths. Pause. Compare that to Jesus, who has a mouth and he speaks the word of life. Eyes and he sees everything. Ears. And then... The psalmist says, those who make them will become like them, so do all who trust in them. Very profound principle. Your idols grab the affection of your heart and you become like your idols. That's why if you want to be like Jesus, you need to keep looking at him. And the third reason this foundation is important is simply this. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. Temptations will come your way, and in every kind of affliction and persecution and temptation, there's a truth seeking to undermine your trust in God. But strong doctrines are the only thing to save you from those types of temptations. That's why Paul in Colossians chapter 2 wrote this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in your faith. Paul wants you and me to send roots down into Jesus, into the word of God that stabilize us in times of hurricane and tornado. And then lastly, your foundation is a function of, I'm sorry, your stability is a function of what? Your foundation and your legs. So one way to think about the strength of your legs is to go to Jesus' parable of the sowers. And you may know this, the seed was cast in four different environments. One of those, the third type of soil, is where the seed comes in. Um, the scripture says in Mark 4, and those hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things choke out the word. So here's your faith. Think of it as your legs. There are things in your life seeking to choke it out, to make it less vital, less real to you. We have to be on guard against those things. So what fruit is your faith producing? Got to think about that. Finally, 
Here's faith, beloved. It is looking all around you at what Jesus has done for you, is doing for you, and will do for you. It is looking at Jesus, past, present, future, looking at Jesus, looking, 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 until you say, you are faithful and you will hold me fast. Let's pray. Faithful Jesus, how do we know? You died on the cross for us. You rose from the dead for us. Therefore, you will hold us fast. There is nothing you will spare for the good of our faith, the good of our souls, that you might enjoy us in your presence forever. Strengthen our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us read.